Hello, and welcome to Life Beyond the Numbers, the podcast for those curious about the non-finance aspects or the human side of working in accounting and finance. I'm Susan Nicriazon, and while I believe there is beauty in balancing a set of financial statements, the intricacies that underpin the workings are wondrous. The real beauty for me is in working with people. The intricacies that underpin our workings are wondrous too. And not one particular combination of input or formula will ever generate the same result. Join me and my guests as we place a lens on some of these wondrous intricacies that make us unique. And as we share insights, knowledge and strategies to inspire your life beyond the numbers. Today I'm joined by Marcus Thompson based in Oxford. Marcus, it's lovely to have you on Life Beyond the Numbers today. Thank you. Nice to be here. Marcus, you worked at Oxfam for 40 years and even longer because you said you volunteered also for a couple of years after. I can't even imagine working for one organization for 40 years. What kept you at Oxfam for 40 plus years? Well, I think it's a big enough and a growing organization. So I was able to move around and move up and move across to do different jobs over those years. So I started off as the youth officer doing sponsored walks and and talking to young people about development issues in youth clubs and so on. Went to India as a regional director for an area of India, then went into the emergencies department with major, a sequence of major emergencies after about every, I mean, there are lots of little emergencies, but then big ones every five years and ended up as a coach to our country directors around the world, mostly in Asia and Africa. I think Oxfam is a household name, definitely in the UK, probably Europe, probably worldwide. Was it always? Difficult to to answer. I, I think a number of key things happened. Oxfam started in 1942 in the war and it was a number of pacifist quakers other peace-loving people who wanted to help regardless of of the war and it was controversial at that time because i i understand oxford staff and it was volunteers i guess trying to negotiate with german red cross or high commander whoever to put food into blockaded Greece. The Germans occupied Greece and the Allies blockaded it and the farmers and fishermen were caught in the middle. And so it was controversial from the very beginning. And I I think one of the major breakthroughs was the telex or telegram abbreviation of the Oxford Committee for Famine Relief, which is what the Uh committee started as. It was an abbreviation of the Oxford Committee for Famine Relief to Oxfam, (laughs) because we need your money desperately. Please telegram us, you know, or send us a message. And that name somehow caught on. Ah. And then I think 
Oxfam has taken a leading role in major emergencies, refugee emergencies, earthquakes, famines, which of course have a high media profile and, and indeed the organization needs to have a high media profile because it needs a lot of money from a lot of people to do a lot of things. I guess a lot of people think of Oxfam in terms of emergency relief because it's had such a high profile in emergency relief, but actually as much or more of its work is not in emergencies, but is in ongoing development and helping local communities to improve things for themselves. Responding to an emergency or working in an emergency situation, it's possibly not something many of us have experienced. What's it like to deploy to an emergency situation? Well, I think, first of all, the, the, the media coverage of these things is always rather sensational and dramatic. And yes, there are certain crises and people are in great distress, but also a good deal of normal life has to go on. So a lot of people say, how distressing is it? Well, it would be distressing if you weren't busy doing what you can. So yes, you're fulfilled in a sense. Yes, you're busy. Yes, there's drama and distressing situations, but you're doing something about it practically there on the ground. And that's the saving grace, if you like, because you're not just seeing awful things and not able to do anything about it. Actually, with an organization like Oxfam, the resources are very considerable. And to, to make, whether it's food available or healthcare or water supplies or other basic things, helping farmers get back to farming, helping people rebuild their houses, whatever it is, there's lots of positive aspects of what is a very distressing situation. Yeah, fair enough. And I guess it varies also whether it's conflict related or a natural disaster. Yes, because of the security issues related to conflict and a lot of frustration because conflict means politics, means people giving permission to go or not to go or they want to show you this or they don't want you to see that. So, yes, they're, they're very different circumstances and I guess security of the staff on the ground is like the key differential. What was the first emergency that you deployed to, Marcus? It was either Uganda drought in, in the Sahel areas in northern Uganda or it was South African incursion into Angola, which had lots of displaced people fleeing from that incursion. I would think it was probably Uganda. We had an office in Uganda. That office then is gearing up to respond to a food crisis or a drought or, or yes, movement of people because of uh, conflict between political groups. Was there usually an office in a country where you went to? Yes. And in a sense, that's the secret of good operations because you've got people on the ground who've got a bank account and who've got some vehicles and who know who you can trust and who you can't trust and know what you can do and you can't do. And the emergencies operation usually was helping that office to upgrade, you know, to, to increase its, its impact and output 
and increase staff and increase resources and so on. So it was like a team that comes in to bolster the response to the emergency and prepare the office locally. Well, a bit, but, but also the office, it, it's giving resources so they can recruit locally because yes, there are experts, water engineers and nutritionists and uh, I don't know, logistician who we can deploy from Europe or from the UK, but there's also, as long as the office has got the resources, it can recruit the people and hire the trucks and the drivers and whatever is needed. You said an emergency, maybe every, small emergencies continuously, but big emergencies every five years or so. So how did you shape the emergencies part of Oxfam over the years? I, I consider my most significant contribution over those years was the in, initiation of a cadre of people who we called emergency support personnel because you suddenly need, when there's a major emergency, half a dozen nurses, water engineers, whatever it is. And we kept going to the same good-hearted people, professionals, and saying, could you take three months off and go, or could you take a month off or three months off and rush to wherever it is and do whatever it is? And after a couple of times, they're saying, well, actually, no, I can't. I, I was deployed twice last year and now the company says, no, I must stay or in the GP practice or whatever. So I decided that we needed a cadre of people who are employed by Oxfam to be deployed to emergencies and will take the experience of one to the, to the next mm. so that we're not using new people all the time and we are not pressed by the urgency of the moment to take people who may not be particularly uh, well equipped for that and the problem I had with my uh, HR colleagues and finance colleagues was that I said uh, you know I've got a, a two-month budget or three-month budget for this for each of these pe two or three people please give them a two-year contract to it <laughs> can't possibly give a two-year contract to somebody with only a three-month budget to it and I said well I, I won't they won't need the budget because I shall deploy them to situations which will cover the costs of their time there so we had an argument for a little while and in the end it worked and and that whole cadre of people has worked extremely well and from my the, my modest beginnings of employing two or three of them and by the time I retired from Oxfam I think there were about a hundred wow. deployable people of specialist skills logisticians accountants nurses uh, water engineers and so on and it I am sure it has hugely improved the quality over the, we're talking 20, 30 years, it has hugely improved the quality of Oxfam's emergency response to have those experienced deployable people. And they're not all, you know, Brits or, or, or indeed Europeans. So it's, it's a multinational, multi-skilled, multi-languaged, 
cadre of people. Fantastic. And a more professional approach then as well, because they yes. have, yeah, they know what they're doing when they get there. And I'm sure much more professional now. I've been retired from Oxfam 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, you know, I can't tell you all the improvements and professionalism in those last 10 years. But, but yes, if you ask me what's the most significant thing that I was able to do it, institutionally, it was the institution of what I think are now called humanitarian support personnel. Okay. You mentioned accountants as part of the emergency support personnel. I think sometimes people find it interesting or even strange that you would have an accountant at an emergency. No, not at all. A key, a key member of the team. Because there's a lot of money and there are a lot of quick decisions and if you don't keep a you know, tab on it all, it all very quickly unravels. And uh, I mean, especially if you've got, well, a, a major emergency and a turnover of staff, which again, I think is one of the things we try and avoid. You, you do need turnover because you need to give people a rest. Mm. They're, they're working extremely hard. But equally, if there isn't some order in the whole thing and the accountants are key people in, in keeping that all in, I mean, the days are past where, you know, I'm on God's business, so you do whatever <laughs> you like and, you know, the, the, the normal things are abandoned because don't you know I'm on God's business, I'm, I'm delivering... Saving lives. That's right. I'm saving lives. Uh, stop talking to me about uh, keeping the accounts or whatever. Collecting a receipt. That's right. If ever there were those days, they're certainly past now. And you need to operate a professional and effective and, and publicly accountable, because you're using public money for the most part, and in a very fast-moving situation with, as I say, yes, high risks, because there is such... in uncertainty on everything so it's a very high risk situation and uh, yes the accountants in partnership with the logistician and with the hr people that so that your staff have contracts and and get paid yes get paid and all the normal things happen they probably have to happen twice or or 10 times as fast as normal but they all must be done because it's a publicly accountable operation Mm. And we know we're held accountable. So mm. uh, a good thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Does it take a certain type of person, Marcus, to cope with going in and out of those difficult situations? Yes. I think you need to be level-headed, calm, professional in your, in your area so that you're not you're not bowled over and and pushed and shoved by the drama and the pressures that you're able to keep your head and do a professional job in the field and work well with other people because the pressures of the job mean that there's risk of of personal conflict and, and disagreements getting out of hand and so on so it's important to have the personal to to cope with those situations and and not let them not let the emotion of it drive you 
mm-hmm. mean, the emotion of it, or the, the 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 emotion does drive you in the sense that you're doing something which is really important and is life saving. But yes, you have to be measured in the way you relate to colleagues and undertake all that work. Over the years, you've gone in and out of I don't know how many countries and worked with so many different nationalities, obviously, as well. Is there a secret to connecting well with people, Marcus? Listening and not making assumptions, questioning our own assumptions. I would also say thinking the best of people, which which can be dangerous. Start with thinking the best of people unless you've got evidence (laughs) to the contrary. Emergency situations are very chaotic in many ways. So people do have scope to misuse resources and normal constraints may be removed by the situation. So one has to be careful, but I think, listen, question your assumptions and start with thinking the best of people. I like that, I like that. That goes across the continents. It's everywhere you go, if you can keep those in mind, you'll be able to relate to people. I think so. And Marcus, do you have a favourite country, one that's close to your heart? Two. Two. (laughs) (laughs) Um, India, because it's the country I went to first as an 18-year-old to do a year's VSO, which changed my life. As I look back on it now, I still see it as the happiest year. I've had a very happy life, but that year was still the happiest. So... um, I was very young to go away, Marcus, at 18. Well, in those days, unfortunately, (laughs) ESO took 18-year-old school leavers. And I went to a little school in the foothills of the Himalayas. And naively, without any technical, even even technical teaching, you know, I figured what these kids need is moral fibre, a Boy Scout troop, the English language, and I can give them all three. And here we go. You know, in some ways, I say that I work for Oxfam to make reparations for the damage that I did as a VSO volunteer. (laughs) It was, you know, I I was only a year older than the young people that I was working with. And mostly I was teaching children, 10 year olds, but I was only a few years older than them. And it was a wonderful experience. And I've never looked back in a way from that and then learning a bit of Punjabi and later learning Hindi makes living in India and being in India so much more rewarding and and so that was one country and the other one is Cambodia Mm. and I went to Cambodia in 79 in a sense on the heels of the Vietnamese who had invaded to kick out the Khmer Rouge and that was such a amazing uh, experience. Amazing because Cambodia is a, an amazing, is a lovely country, but the horror of what had happened the previous four or five years and the horror of, of what was still happening because the Vietnamese had invaded and the world felt 
the nasty North Vietnamese who had just defeated the Americans were not to be trusted and perhaps all this damage was done by the they're just bad mouthing the Khmer Rouge and so on and it took a long time for the the penny to drop that that the horrors of the Khmer Rouge regime and rightly or wrongly whether the you know the Vietnamese invasion condemned internationally actually was a liberation for Cambodia although it was a, a compromised liberation because they often the Cambodians will say the Vietnamese are our best friends and our worst enemies mm. there's always been the tension but we were not very f quick to get to Cambodia the Vietnamese went in in December January of 78 December 78 January 79 we didn't get there until I don't know July or August 79 mm. and as far as Oxfam's concerned it was a woman in Oxford banging on the office door <laughs> she was in touch with a french woman she had been in touch with some french doctors who were communist with communist sympathizers and therefore were given access to cambodia and she was saying what they have found is horrendous and you oxfam should get there and do something about it and yes cautiously mm. we eventually went but but it wasn't as if we went you know a week after the vietnamese went we went five or six months after the vietnamese had had gone in and uh, yes it it was a i mean it's like a moon landing there was nothing mm. the phnom penh was still an empty city and the flight that i flew in on which was i think probably the second flight that we put in with relief supplies there was mm -hmm. nobody at the airport <laughs> we the the pilot flew past the airport and dipped his wings and called the control tower and there's nobody there and, and flew in in the end interestingly sort of past the barrels of the anti-aircraft guns <laughs> Welcome to Phnom Penh. <laughs> Welcome to Phnom Penh. Stop the airplane and wait. And eventually a jeep comes with some military people. And uh, who are you? And what? <laughs> who are you? And what are you up to? <laughs> and and so yes, just amazing situation of an empty city with some people beginning to come back and the new government beginning to set up ministry of agriculture and so on and you visit the minister of agriculture in a room in a house to discuss agricultural assistance to get things going and he says have you got any pens and paper please wow wow amazing and and where you start it was and I, that was for me it was a wonderful i mean a wonderful challenge that i'm asked to deploy to to Cambodia and set up an, a program with I think a hundred and a hundred thousand pounds maybe yes. I, I could spend mm. and the immediate issue is food <laughs> go to 
you know, there are orphanages full mm. of children who are hungry. I mean, there's everything. <laughs> everything is needed. Mm. Uh, so difficult, uh, difficult deployment, uh, difficult decisions. And by happy or unhappy chance, unhappy chance really, John Pilger had been filming uh, in Cambodia a, a few weeks before I got there, but there was a television strike in the UK. So his filming couldn't go out. So it went out when the strike was resolved. And by that time I was in Cambodia without communications, except going to the GPO um, in the center of the town and helping them with pens and pencils as well. And then getting them to send telegrams to Oxford and receiving telegrams, which they would then pass to me. And from Pilger's television programs here in the UK, as my colleagues eventually said to me in Phnom Penh, said to me that the world has gone bananas for Cambodia, seeing this, there's, there's huge fundraising operation. I began to get messages that said, you, never mind 100,000, you can comfortably spend 500,000 or a million and then five million and I sent them a telex back you know, a message back saying look I'm trying to do a serious job here you know ho 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 telegrams like that are really not helpful and they said no it's real the, you know, the world has gone bananas about Cambodia Blue Peter and uh, television programs and every Oxfam shop is a Blue Peter some you know I knew nothing about all that but Anyway, it was the beginning of a very major program that I was happy to be involved in for about 12 months. And because it was is such a strange situation for me, it and you know, it was such a significant time for me and for Cambodia, then Cambodia remains a very precious a very special country for me mm. and I'd love to go there and see meet some of the people who I knew as children then who are now adults and we, I keep in touch with and that's nice mm. that's perhaps the joy for me of having worked internationally in development yes we've we've achieved a great deal for a great number of people but crucially I have personal friends from those difficult days who we keep in touch with. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. You said, Marcus, that you went from the emergencies team to coaching country directors. Yeah. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about what that involved. I got to coaching actually in the, in the best way, in, in a textbook way, because having been doing management of humanitarian operations Oxfam colleagues asked me to do some management crises so I was going to countries where there was a management crisis we had failed to appoint or somebody couldn't cope as a country director or whatever it was and I was in the happy position of being able to say I know nothing about this country I, I ended up in Sierra Leone. 
yeah. country director in Sierra Leone. I know nothing about Sierra Leone, all my experiences in Asia, <laughs> but I'll take responsibility as the acting director, but I know nothing. So I'm absolutely dependent on you guys to, to help me through these things. They were first of all, hugely relieved that someone was taking responsibility mm-hmm. in the short term. But then it's the ideal position for a coach because I don't know anything about that country, <laughs> but I can coach them in, well, what are the priorities? Well, let's distinguish those priorities. What's, what's manageable, what, you know, what can be left. So I found that hugely rewarding people who are all at sixes and sevens with a bit of management coaching, which, yes, which I, as I say, I stumbled into without any training or practice. I, and I really enjoyed that. Following on from that, my colleagues in Oxfam were saying, well, as long as you are deployed as a manager in these crises, you're out of circulation. Let's move on train you as a coach and then deploy you to coach people before the you know to help them to cope or you know before their meltdown yeah the prevention um, is better than the cure that's it so so supporting country directors in their difficult lonely isolated challenging role and that will save oxfam lots of money because for somebody who might renew their contract but they don't because they're, you know, fed up and fraught. And if, if a management coach can help the person to enjoy the job they're doing and, and feel fulfilled in the job they're doing and do it better, they will save the organization a load of money by renewing their contract and, and continuing. So, so yes, having blundered into management coaching I then well read a bit for myself and I would recommend to anybody the Julie Starr's coaching manual great book yeah and the amazing seven habits of highly effective people Stephen Covey that I must say I was reluctant to read because I anticipated it was kind of American business speak (laughs) But, but actually it isn't, and it is a most valuable coaching book or, or personal change book. Definitely. So yes, I ended my Oxfam career as a coach to country directors and indeed enjoyed it so much that having retired, I continued to do that for a few years as a volunteer. Mm. Being a coach to Oxfam country directors is perhaps the you know the world's best job you travel the world go to interesting places help people with their challenges and 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 see them flourish (laughs) and uh, what is the secret to flourishing i would say it's doing simple things consistently i think yes coaching is about encouraging people to do simple things consistently and good management is indeed doing simple things consistently. And what are the simple things? Um, always acknowledge the reports that people give to you. Let them know you've read it and that you appreciate it. Always have your 
one-to-one -one meetings with your colleagues. Always listen to them. <laughs> Always, yes. Yeah, so the, the people things, side, so getting the best out of people. Yes. Yeah. It, you will get the best out of people, I think, by doing simple things consistently. Yeah. Uh, not letting the urgent replace the important. Mm. The important is very often not urgent, mm -hmm. but it's important. And the urgent is very often not important, but it's urgent, <laughs> so you do it. <laughs> it seems like if you're in a difficult country with lots going on, like you say, with lots of urgencies, you might think that spending time with people, your staff, is not something, you can leave yes. that until everything has calmed down. My experience is limited only to Oxfam and the mm. college that I knew there. But my experience in international development is that if you do well in your development projects, then you, in a sense, are rewarded and promoted to be a manager, but without being given a clear training or help that the job as a manager is quite different from the job as, as a doer. Mm -hmm. And so many of our managers don't manage their colleagues and their program because really they feel now they've got a license to do even, to do even more. So there they are busy doing and I, they haven't got time to spend, you know, have meetings with colleagues and discuss what they're doing or not doing. They're too busy doing. And that is, you know, I would say a fatal flaw because okay. mm. because your job now is managing the others not doing it yourself and indeed maybe not doing anything not doing anything except supporting and and managing and and realizing what it is that your responsibility is as a manager mm. and yes sometimes the manager's manager doesn't appreciate that and is is making demands for product rather than for process and i grant that it all needs to be balanced but but there is a serious risk product rather than production capacity mm -hmm. we focus on pro production and not on pro production capacity which is what the manager should be focusing on mm. the production capacity of those working you know the goose not the golden egg yeah look after, look after the goose and it <laughs> produce the golden egg so yes I, I think there's a lot of very interesting areas of good management trickling down or indeed bad management trickling down. I recall talking with a group of middle managers about how they were treated by their managers and whether they got acknowledgement for the reports they wrote and comments about them and whether they had a regular, you know, meeting with their manager to check progress and, and uh, their objectives and how they were getting on. No, no, none of those. No, no, they never. No, that's no. And I said, and 
how about the way that you relate to the people you manage? And I suddenly saw the light door. Oh, we don't do any of those things. <laughs> you know, they suddenly realize that all the criticisms they are making of their managers, they were not themselves doing. So again, I come back, it's doing simple things consistently that so many managers don't do because they're too busy doing other, <laughs> doing what, well, more urgent, but not necessarily more important things. Yeah, yeah. And, and honestly, I've worked in other sectors, Marcus, and I can say that I've seen the same. It's not it's not just to international development that that's the the way things are done. You know, it's it's also other places. But you retired from Oxfam, but you didn't retire. Well, I volunteered for for Oxfam for a few years and have spent the last uh, 10 years as trustee of Asylum Welcome and some years chair of mm. the, which I recently gave up. Mm. Uh, I really retired. <laughs> I now confine myself to the allotment. That sounds nice. <laughs> <laughs> so Marcus, I believe you also were awarded an MBE. Yes, that's early days. I went to Ethiopia <clears throat> as emergencies officer in 1984. Mm -hmm. There was a war in Ethiopia, the Tigrayans and Eritreans fighting against the Derg regime. And there was drought and famine, hugely complicated by war. Mm -hmm. And I, as emergencies officer, went to make an assessment of what we should do and couldn't get permission to go to Wallow and Tigray, which were the centers of both the war, the famine, but went to other places. And everybody that I spoke to, whether it was Catholic sisters or government officials or other international NGOs, everybody was saying there is no food. And so my, uh, my conclusion to Oxfam was we need to provide food. And my suggestion was charter a ship, fill it with grain and send it because that's what everybody says is needed. At the time, it's not the kind of thing that uh, private NGOs did. That's the kind of thing that the UN did. Yes, the World Food Programme or someone. That's right. But it wasn't happening. And so I said, you know, for two or three reasons. One, the food is needed. So that's, you know, get some food there. Second, it will be a criticism of the other people who ought, should be, but aren't doing it. And thirdly, it will give other organizations the opportunity to come on board. There had been, I think, a Disasters Emergency Committee appeal a little earlier for the Horn of Africa or whatever. So there was quite a lot of money and the war was frustrating how people could spend it. Mm. So sending a ship, and I wasn't sure whether Oxfam would accept my recommendation, but anyway, they did. So the MV Elphis 
had 14,000 tons or something on board and it was on the high seas when Michael Burke, who was a BBC reporter who did get into Corem and Wallow and again had a shattering television presentation of dawn on the plain of Wallow with thousands of people starving and again it was a major media public concern issue here and happily our ship was already halfway to to Assab by then the, the big port so that was good value and I, I don't know the I don't know the ins and outs of it but anyway the Queen gave me an MBE on the strength of that <laughs> Congratulations. And um, maybe just one final question, Marcus. You obviously were in and out of a lot of stressful situations over the years, and whether that was here in Oxford or in deployment, how did you maintain your own health and well-being? Mm, difficult. Being careful. Mm-hmm. Being careful. Having a family, mm-hmm. um, who I'm responsible to and responsible for. Having mm-hmm. a Christian faith, which which I perhaps should should rush to. I mean, should should mention first, but it's certainly a significant element, and I enjoyed it. Mm. I enjoy the work. Yes, it's stressful sometimes, but it's very rewarding. I sense that the choice that we all have is to do nothing or do what you can. So you do what you can. And I was privileged to be able to, you know, do what I can with a big lever so that, that, you know, I could lever much more than just what little I did. I'm privileged to have the authority to, and and the, the, I don't know, credibility to really, yes, to leverage significant efforts in, and whether it's the, the famine in Ethiopia or, or the, the circumstances in Cambodia or the genocide in Rwanda or lots of other earthquakes and emergencies and things in between those. So my career in Oxfam was, in a sense, blessed in that Oxfam has had and has huge resources and so those of us who have responsibility for the deployment of those resources are in a very privileged position very rewarding position and it all goes back as i said to you earlier to that year (laughs) that year in india as an 18 year old if anyone's thinking of doing you know vso or a year abroad beware it can change your life (laughs) well on that uh, happy warning (laughs) we've come to the end thank you so much marcus for sharing so many incredible stories really that i suppose parts of what goes on that we don't always think about well thank you very much it's been a pleasure to share them with you thank you marcus thank you for listening today And if you enjoyed our exploration of life beyond the numbers, please subscribe to this podcast and share it with others who might also be curious about their own life beyond the numbers.